wanted to lift up Jesus' name, high and mighty. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kick off uh, a 12-week series here this uh, this this week. Um, I think there's a slide for it. Uh, it's called The Way of Paradox, Following the Right-Side-Up King in an Upside-Down World. And so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, several passages uh, in the Gospel of Mark. So the Gospel of Mark is a New Testament letter that was penned. In fact, most uh, scholars believe it was one of the first uh, letters that was written, or Gospel accounts that was written in the New Testament. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at 12 different encounters that Jesus had with people. And so this week we're going to look at his encounter that he had in calling his first followers to himself. And so our, our passage today comes from uh, Mark chapter 1. I'm going to read it in its entirety. I think it's going to be up on the screen. There we go. Thanks, Nathan. You're going to, you'll learn how to keep up with me. I'm, I'm all over the place, but we'll try. Um, I'm going to read the passage in its entirety. Um, if you don't have a Bible, obviously it's on the screen. I think you can see it up there. Uh, we also, I didn't mention this at the beginning, but we have made some Bibles available to you as you walk in at the table. So if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along in the version that I'm using, which is the English Standard Version, you can grab one of those. And if you don't have a Bible, you can keep it. So that would be our gift to you uh, today. So if you didn't grab one on the way in, grab one on the way out so that you have a Bible. And then when you come back to church next Sunday, uh, then you can follow along. But for this week, let's, uh, let's hear God's word from Mark chapter 1. I'm going to begin in verse 14, and then I'll stop in verse 20. This is the word of God. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's ask God to bless his word this morning. Our Father, um, we come to you now as our only source of hope and truth, and so we turn to your word. Uh, we pray now that the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts here would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So it's January, no surprise there. It's uh, the, the month of resolutions. It's the month of new change, new start. Maybe that's why you're at church. I'm glad that might have spurred you on to be at church. Uh, regardless, we all have our own personal resolutions that we want to resolve to be better people in some way or another. So I, uh, in my desire to be a better person, uh, rigorously and faithfully read the, the Men's Health magazine that my father so graciously gives me every Christmas. It's just convenient in January. But in January, I read that thing cover to cover because I'm so inspired to get healthy in January. But in this, in this month's edition, I found this rather interesting article. It was titled, Life Everlasting, A Shopper's Guide. Life Everlasting, A Shopper's Guide. Uh, apparently, according to the Center for Spirituality, Theology, and Health at Duke University, so it must be true, at Duke University, they said this. They said, people who are religious and attend at least one faith-based event a week, seem to live years longer than the less devotional. Okay, maybe there's some, some validity to that, I'm not sure. But the article goes on, and, they, and they, they give, and this is not Duke, by the way, so we'll give Duke some, some, a little bit of uh, clout there, but this article goes on to expound on this idea, and it says, here's what they've done. They've ranked the perks and the pitfalls of the five major world religions, Christianity, 
Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Judaism. And so what they go on to do in this article is they rank by level of overall devotional difficulty. Uh, and, and they rank these. And so the categories are the homework that's involved in the religion, the time commitment, the food rules, the ethical code, which at the end of the day gave them their top five. And, and here was the order of the top five, starting with the easiest, going to the hardest levels. They were, they were these. The easiest, Judaism. Second is Christianity. Third is Buddhism. Fourth is Islam. And fifth is Hinduism. Now, I don't know. I, I was quite skeptical of some of the uh, parameters they put on some of those commitments, but, but I think they're completely off on us. In fact, I want to make the suggestion today as we look at this passage that actually Christianity should be at the top of that list. And I don't make that statement because I think Christianity is a religion that's filled with rules and regulations. It's actually not. I don't make that statement because I think that Christianity is some sort of unattainable standard that we're supposed to be as people because actually what we'll see today is it's not. I make that statement is because I think that, in fact I know and we'll see in today's passage, that Christianity first and foremost calls us to a relationship before it calls us to religion. It first and foremost calls us to a person before it calls us to modified behavior. And so today, what we'll see is, is that religion actually is easier than relationship. I'm not sure if you've ever been in a relationship, but they're extremely dynamic and difficult. Are they not? There are so many different layers involved in people and the way God has made us. And so my suggestion is that actually relationship is harder than religion. Here's the big idea I want us to take away from this passage today. It's this. is that the call to follow Jesus is a call that demands everything from us. And it changes everything about us. It demands everything from us in our lives, if it's true. And it changes everything about us when we, when we come to know Christ. And so today, um, what we're going to see is, is that Jesus is um, beginning his earthly ministry in Mark's gospel by making some outlandish statements on, on some levels. Here's how I want to break up the passage. I want to look at two things. I first want to look at the call of Jesus, and then secondly, I want to look at the kingdom of Jesus and, and what it is. So we're actually going to take these in reverse order. We're going to look at the call of Jesus first, which is looking at that narrative passage, right? Verses 16 down through 20, if you're following along. Um, don't have to have that on the screen, by the way, Nathan. Uh, verses 16 through 20 uh, is the narrative of Jesus calling his first disciples. And then we're going to go back up to verses 14 and 15, because that's really the banner statement for this whole section in Mark's gospel by looking at the kingdom of Jesus. So let's first look at, uh, consider the call of Jesus. Um, so the gospel of Mark is an extremely fast-moving gospel. Uh, if you've read it in its entirety, it's, it's 15 chapters long, and Mark always uses immediately. It's like immediately this happened, immediately this happened. It's like he's almost overemphasizing, you know, which kind of undermines the entire purpose of it. But, but he's a, a fast-moving gospel account that really doesn't give a lot of the full details of what's going on. And so here, as we look at our passage, in, in, from this the beginning in chapter 1 to where we are today, in 15 verses, a lot's already happened. So gospel, Mark's gospel does not start with the birth narrative. It doesn't give us all those details. It actually starts with John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist is out in the wilderness. He baptizes Jesus. Uh, Jesus goes away for 40 days in the wilderness for temptation. And then he comes back into Galilee, which is where we are today. So all of that has happened quickly in Mark's gospel. In other words, Mark is trying to get us right into the story right away. 
And so he does that by beginning in verse 16 by giving us the context. Context. He says, passing along the Sea of Galilee. Now that's significant because the Sea of Galilee was in this northern region in the Palestinian region. right? So Jesus was born southern in Nazareth. And then he moves up to the north where he goes to the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee was extremely significant to the locals in that region, but it was not largely significant to the, to the uh, first century Greco-Roman world. You see, the Sea of Galilee was about seven miles uh, wide. It was about 13 miles long. It wasn't too substantial, but it had 16 ports where people would do business. And so at this location where Jesus arrives to call his first followers is an extremely significant place to these people. Jesus would not only begin his ministry here, but he would also end it here. Let's see who he meets here. He meets four fishermen. First we see he meets Simon and Andrew, then he meets John and James. These are all fishermen that are out on the sea working. Now, one thing I want to clear up for us is this misnomer that Jesus' followers were just a bunch of stupid people. Okay? Listen, these men were ordinary men. Yes, they were. They were fishermen. But these men were shrewd businessmen. I mean, look at the text, the way it talks about it. It says that they're out at the sea. They've been at the sea all night fishing, and they didn't have much luck. Uh, but they had hired servants, and they had family involved. So these men were over this great production in fishing. This business provided for their family, provided for the welfare of the uh, city. And so we meet these busy businessmen. And that's significant because what it, what it does is it shows us how profound their response is. As we'll see, they dropped everything. They followed them. They're in the midst of a business endeavor and they dropped everything to follow Jesus. Hang on to that thought for a minute and why that would be so significant. Because I think as we look at verse 17, the, the thrust is, is in Jesus' first words to these, to these disciples. Now, uh, Jesus has made one other statement, and we'll look at that in a minute, but his first statement that at least isn't recorded in, in Mark, and we'll talk about how there's a, a little bit of a backstory going on here, but his first story, or his first statement is this, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. Follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. Now, a lot of us, if you've been around Christianity or the church at all, always want to jump to the back end of that. We always want to go talk about how we should become fishers of men. And while that is indeed important, that is not the command for us today. The command for us today is to follow me. The promise is what Jesus will make of us. The command is to follow Jesus today. Why would that have been profound? Well, it was profound because uh, Luke's gospel account, which is one of the, the alternate gospel accounts that we have in the New Testament, well, gives us a little bit more of a fuller backstory. Luke, Luke's gospel account in chapter 5 gives us more of what's going on, and it'll kind of give us a little bit more fullness to why this was so significant. In Luke's account, Luke records that there was a great crowd surrounding Jesus at this point. So what we read in Mark, it just kind of seems like there's this few fishermen kind of hanging out. Well, that's not the case. Actually, in Luke's gospel, it says that there was a great crowd surrounding him to the point that Jesus actually had to get out of the water to get away from the people. And so there's this great following, a great throng of people that are following Jesus at this point. But not only did he do that in Luke's account, but he had also done that miracle. If you're familiar with it, uh, the fishermen, like we know in our account, didn't have any fish turn up that day. Right? They had just started cleaning up their nets, mending their nets, going back uh, to, to clean up shop, and Jesus says, throw the net back out. And so the throwing the net back out was just no ordinary task. It wasn't just a little tadpole net here. 
This was a five to ten man endeavor. They would have to throw the net out. Somebody would have to dive down under, pull it back up, pull the fish in, go to the shallow water, shake the fish out, get the fish out, clean up the net, mend it. And they had already done all that. And Jesus tells them to go out and do that again. And he does, and they do it. And Jesus blesses their endeavors, right? He fills the, the net up to the point of breaking. And so, so the response is, is profound because of that backstory. Jesus had put his glory on display for them right there. That, that Jesus had commanded his created order right there in front of them. So we don't have that backstory, but now you do. But one final piece that makes this response uh, to Jesus' call so profound is the fact that Jesus came to them. Now, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. He would have looked like one. He was, clearly had a, a following behind him. But he comes out and he pursues these four men. He pursues them intentionally and specifically. And the fact that a rabbi was looking for students was unheard of in this culture. It simply wasn't done. In fact, it would have been the exact opposite. Students would have sought out their rabbis. And it would have been just by some casual relationship where you ask, hey, do you want to be my rabbi? It would have been done strictly by law-keeping. You would have had to show your worth to follow your teacher. And Jesus flips the script by saying, I am pursuing you. And does he put any qualifications on the following? No. He says, follow me. He calls these men to follow him. Why is Jesus so compelling? Why was he so compelling to these men? Why is he compelling to you? Or is he? even compelling to you. Why would they drop everything they were doing? They left their workers behind to take care of all those fish that they had just hauled in, to take care of the nets. They left their family. Their father was there. You can imagine the sons take off to follow this rabbi, leaving all the work behind. I'm sure that went well. But why is he so compelling? Here's, here's what I think is going on. I think that these men, and so should, should we be, were interested more in who Jesus was than actually what Jesus could do for them. Because if they were interested in prosperity, they would have maybe hung around with that a little bit more, maybe thrown out another net. But these men were intrigued by who Jesus was and what he came to do. Now, now listen, they didn't know the fullness of the story. They didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't know that he was this long-awaited Messiah for the Jews. He, they didn't know any of this. And so he comes and he calls these men to himself. He pursues them. He calls them to follow him. Well, if you're tracking with me, and I'm sure these fishermen were, were thinking this along some lines, where, what is he calling me to follow? Like, like on one level, you would think that they maybe just thought, okay, come with me where I'm going. And, and maybe the fishermen did that. You know, we're, we're speculating a little bit here what's going on in their minds. Maybe the fishermen did that on some levels. Okay, this guy's calling me to follow him. Let's go see what he's doing. But the call was there. The call came, and the men responded. But I think we'll be surprised as we turn our eyes back up to verses 14 and 15 and consider where he actually was calling them to go. So let's secondly look at the kingdom of Jesus in verses 14 and 15. Um, my wife and I, Heather, we lived in New Orleans for about a year in uh, 2006. We moved there after college to do some relief ministry uh, in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And so we lived there for about a year. 
And it was, I don't remember the exact timing, I didn't, I didn't stat, uh, fact check with my wife on this illustration, but nonetheless, uh, we were in the midst of the grind of doing ministry there, and we were looking for some, some normalcy, um, and to be honest, we were poor when we were in New Orleans, we, we kind of lived in some pretty ordinary needs, and we didn't have much money, but, but I was just, we were just longing for some normalcy, and so I, in my grand wisdom, pursued a date night, um, as many of you men should be familiar with an idea of a date night, if you don't, let's talk after the service, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, so I was pursuing my wife to go on a date, and I planned it all. And I had discovered that one of our one of our bands that we liked, um, this might be throwing myself under the bus, The Fray, I don't know. They, they were cool in 2006, so The Fray was coming into, uh, into town. And so what I did was I actually um, sought out their tour manager, or somehow I emailed somebody, and they responded, and, and I totally played the Jesus card. Like I totally just said, hey, we're missionaries, sir, you know, Pour out here for Jesus. Can we go to your concert for free? I mean, I don't know what the email sounded like, but it was something along those lines. <laughs> totally played that card, and they did. And so, um, so this whoever I was talking to, they were like, "Yeah, we'll put you on the list." So I was like, "Oh, we're on the list, okay." So I don't think I even told Heather. I, I planned the whole night. I'm like, "Yeah, we're going out. It's going to be great. Dress nice, yada yada." So we go down to the House of Blues, downtown New Orleans. It's cool. We're vibing. My swag is like on at this point. I'm like, "Yeah, we're going to a concert, and we're on the list." Well, we show up at the ticket office, and I, you know, I'm kind of like leaning on there, and I'm like, yeah, we're on the list, you know, and just kind of like, and she's like, uh, okay, name, and then, yeah, you're not on the list. I'm like, check the other list, you know, it's like, yeah, we're on the list. Well, you know, push came to shove, there, there wasn't a lot of shoving, but we were not on the list. They had, they had dropped the ball at some point in the game, and we weren't on the list. And so, I, I mean, I was, if, if you know me, so we've got some family and friends here, you know me, I don't really take no well for an answer, so I'm Mr. Like, maneuver kind of guy, I'm like maneuvering. I think at one point I had considered getting on the tour bus with the band and telling them our situation. Um, nonetheless, my wife and her wisdom stopped me from that. But here's the connection I wanted to make, um, is that, that for me, in that moment, I thought that entrance into that concert was available, and it was readily easy. I mean, I thought it was, I thought we were on the list. And so I thought it was coming to us like it was promised to us. And what I discovered was that I was unable to manipulate the circumstances to enter, that, that I couldn't get in just any old way, that I had to buy a ticket to get in. And so well, the connection here to our passage is that Jesus actually invites us to follow him somewhere, and it's to follow him into his kingdom. And entrance into that kingdom might actually come in a different way than you've ever heard. And so I really want to just spend the rest of our time together looking at what Jesus' statement is, what he's calling us to do, and how we come into that kingdom. And so look at the proclamation that Jesus makes. Again, this is the first statement in Mark's gospel that is recorded. So hence it's significant. Everything's been leading up, even though it's quick, it's only been 13 verses, but everything's been leading up to what Jesus would say. And he comes into Galilee, this seemingly obscure place, and he makes his proclamation. The proclamation is that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. But before we look at actually kind of what that means, think about how he's making his appearance. Remember he's in Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. He comes proclaiming this message of a kingdom coming to the most obscure and seemingly irrelevant place. Like if you were a king and you were going to go somewhere to tell everybody about the greatest news in the world at that time, where would you go? You'd probably go to Rome. You'd probably go to one of the major city centers where all of the hustle and bustle is taking place, where all the trade's coming through, where the word can go forth. But not Jesus. 
Jesus goes to Galilee. He goes to a place of obscurity. He goes to a place of insignificance. And he goes there not uh, pandering good advice for a better life, not simply making some suggestions to perhaps clean up your living. He goes there declaring a message. In fact, the word used there is the gospel of God. If you look in verse 14, he goes there proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, the gospel to you might seem like a Christian word. It might kind of seem theological or like a Bible word, like that's really loaded. And I don't really know what that means. We're going to break that down in a minute. But, but the gospel was not a strictly religious word. The people that have heard, would have read this or heard this read to them would have known what a gospel was. A gospel was a simple declaration of news. A king would have come, he would have sent his messenger to declare news to, to the world about something that had happened. And that's what Jesus came to do. Mark says that he came proclaiming a declaration of news, a gospel. And the declaration is simply profound. Let's refresh it again, verse 15. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. It's three-part, but it's, it's this in essence. God's kingdom has come here right now through me. Jesus is making that statement that God's kingdom was at hand as they were talking. And so it is this profound idea that, that Jesus has brought a kingdom. And it's such a profound idea that it demands a response. Now the response, if, if you were in those sandals, if you were, could be a number of things. It could be fear. This is a king bringing a kingdom. It could be doubt. Skeptic, right? This guy is full of it, right? It's doubtful. It could be arrogance. Like, well, if you're bringing a kingdom, I want to be a prince in it, right? There's all these different responses that are available to us. And I don't know what your response has been, but the good news is Jesus tells us what our response should be. He tells us at the end of verse 15, he says that we're to repent and believe. We're to repent and believe, and again, that kind of might be another Christianese type of terminology that you may or may not be familiar with, but it's, it's very simple. Repentance is this idea that we're turning away from something and turning towards something else. And so repentance and repenting and believing is always the two sides of the same coin. They always go together in the Bible. And so here, Jesus is telling people, turn away from something and turn towards something else. Turn away from your prior response of doubt, of pride, of skepticism, of arrogance, and turn to something else. Believe in the gospel. Trust in the gospel. That's it. That's, his, that's how he says to get into the kingdom of Jesus. Repent and believe. And so the question that, that looms large on this room today is, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is enough? Do you believe that Jesus has called us to himself and to come into his kingdom simply by turning away from whatever it is that we're trusting in and turning towards him? Now, I refuse to take the assumption that everybody sitting in this room knows what the gospel is. Um, so I'm going to take the attempt in less than three minutes to lay out in full what Jesus has come to do for us. Because that's what, he's, that's what the entire... Uh, all of these encounters that we're going to look at in Mark's gospel over the next 12 weeks is leading towards us believing in this good news. So here it goes. God has established a kingdom, and he sent a king to rule over that kingdom, and that king is Jesus. 
The only way for you or for I to come into that kingdom is by turning away from our sin and by trusting in Christ. In other words, the only way to come into the kingdom is through the work of somebody else. And so here's what Jesus came to do. And this is what we'll see in every account leading up to or following this one. He came to live the life that you shall live and that I shall live. He perfectly obeyed every single one of God's commandments. He never faltered. He never thought wrong, spoke wrong, did wrong. He was perfect in every way. Not only did he live for us, but he also died for us. And so many of you are familiar with the death of Jesus on the cross, right? And so uh, crucifixion was an ordinary means of death in this day. Many people were crucified. It was nothing abnormal. But the Son of God, the perfect Son of God being crucified on the cross was anything but normal. And so what we see in the New Testament account of Jesus dying on the cross is God the Son bearing the punishment that should have come to you, should have come to me, taking and satisfying all of the wrath that should have come to us and taking it in himself. He took it for our active rebellion against God and our passive commitment to following him. That's what he did on the cross. But not only did he do that, but he was buried in the ground that he created. God, Jesus, made everything in the world, and he was buried in his own creation for our sake. After paying the full penalty for our sin, he rose bodily. Yes, bodily. He conquered death. He put death to death. He satisfied sin's demand, and he shut the mouth of our enemy. He crushed the enemy on the cross and resurrection. And so by doing that, he has declared that anyone who would turn away from trusting in whatever it is you're trusting in, and that you would trust that Jesus is enough, he promises entrance to the kingdom. It really is that good. It really is that true. And so what do we get because of Jesus' work on our behalf? Well, one, we get his record of righteousness. We get every credit for what he did in his life. We get forgiveness of our sins because Christ paid for them in full. We get reconciliation with our maker. There is no more division. There is no more barrier. And we get offered new life in the kingdom of God. That begins now. That's what's offered to you. And that's what's offered to me day in and day out in the Christian life. And so the question is, do you believe this to be true? Do you think that Jesus is actually enough? Are you willing to turn away from whatever you're trusting in it? And, and they are good things. Let me put out a, a few uh, options that you may be trusting in. You may be trusting in your moral, upright standard of living. We live in the suburbs, folks. We look good like we have it all together out here, and we do not. You might be trusting in your status, whether it be through work or social status. You might be trusting that that's enough. You might be trusting in the foolishness of money that comes and goes so quickly. That's an easy thing to trust in. You might be trusting in good things like your marriage. You might be trusting in good things like your children. You might be trusting in all kinds of things. And Jesus tells you, turn away from them and trust in me. Could King Jesus be this good? If you're here today and you are not a professing Christian, first off, I'm glad you're here. I'm grateful that you would be willing to come into perhaps a seemingly intimidating situation like this and consider the claims of Jesus. And though you may not up to this point believe everything that I've said today is true or that we've sang or prayed is true, you have to do one thing today. You have to admit that you want it to be true. That you want that satisfaction that only Jesus can bring, that only Jesus offers. If you're here today and you're a believer, you're a professing Christian, 
you've been walking with the Lord maybe longer than I've been alive. You too should struggle with the idea that this is too good to be true. There must be that tension with the gospel that God could be this good to people like us. And so, today, as we leave this passage, we've, we've encountered the king in new and fresh ways. We've seen that, that Jesus commands us to come to himself. Not to a set of rules, or regulations, or modified behavior, or eating habits, or homework commitments, or time commitments, whatever that article said. He calls us to himself. And when he does that, it demands everything of us. It's a difficult call to follow Jesus. But it also changes everything about us. It will change everything about you. And so my call to you today is, is would you follow him? Would you consider the claims of Jesus together with us over the next 12 weeks as we look into the pure, blameless eyes of the Christ and we look at what it means to follow him? And what it means to encounter him. Would you consider that an invitation today? Let's pray. Our gracious God and King, it seems too good to be true that you would, out of your love for people, that you would come and you would seek us out. That you would pursue us, even in this place, Lord. There are people here that have troubles going on, that are that are just unaware of how you're at work in their lives and for some reason you've bought, brought them to this place to hear about Jesus and Lord I don't think that was an accident and so Lord I pray that you would work in, in everyone's hearts today that we would that we would see Jesus for who he is and we would take him at his word and that we would respond to that command to follow him and that you would uh, work in our lives in a way that would change us forever Lord would you do that for your own sake and, and for the good of your people we pray these things in Jesus name.